Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back. Welcome to everybody who's joining us online. I trust you had a rich discussion today. You had a lot to cover. Uh, I hope you were able to get through. Um, what a, We had a great discussion in the group that I was in, so I hope you're enjoying that. All right, we are going, our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 57, verses 9 to 11. And today I'd just like for us to stand up and read this together. Let's read this aloud. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray together. God, we do long for you to be exalted, for your glory to be over all the earth. And God, we just trust you together this morning that you are sovereign over all things, over all the chaos in, the, in our world, over all the chaos in our heart, all the fear that is trying to take up re- residence in our heart, God. We just give it to you and trust that you are sovereign over all. God, would you, would you just help us this morning to kind of empty our mind of all the cares of the day and the things that we have to do after we leave this place? Would you give us attention to focus on what you will teach us through your word? We just thank you, God, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. This is Suzanne Steves. She typically teaches our widows group on Wednesday mornings. She's been doing that for a long time. Um, she's going to introduce herself uh, in just a minute. But um, she is a faithful, faithful follower of Christ. And, and I really am excited. So this is a big step of faith for her to speak to you guys. She came in yesterday and had to speak to an empty room. So she was envisioning you here. Uh, she'll be with us live for her next teaching. But this is Suzanne Steve. So let's give her our attention. Good morning. My name is Suzanne Steves, and I'm excited to be here with you today and also a little nervous to be up here in front, Um, but I'm excited to share about this week's lesson and what God taught me. Now, a little bit about myself. Typically, I spend Wednesday mornings here at the church with the widows group called New Song, and I've done that now for about eight years, and um, it's been such a phenomenal experience for me. Um, I've grown to love these ladies and They've encouraged me so much in my walk, and um, it's become like family, and so I'm grateful for that. Um, So I've been attending TBC for over 25 years now. Uh, My husband, Brian, and I joined Temple Bible Church in 1994, and that is truly where we began our walk with the Lord. Um, And by by God's grace, we've been married now for 26 years, and we have five children ranging in ages from 13 to 24. Um, And this past year, our family grew when our oldest was married, and so we've welcomed um, a sixth child, I guess he's more like an adult, but to our crew, and um, what a blessing it is to grow your family through marriage. Now, as I've studied through these seven chapters, the Lord just kept bringing me back to this one thought, who or what am I placing my trust in? Now, last week, Rebecca shared with us about the ark being taken captive by the Philistines and then returned after much wrath 
went upon them through tumors and the rats. And we witnessed the Israelites joyfully celebrate when the ark was returned. Um, And we read in chapter 6, verse 13, we rejoiced to see it. Now, it was the opportune word for me here as I looked at this, as their excitement seemed to be placed in the ark and not God. And Rebecca challenged us with the thought, do they trust in the God of the box or the box? And as we study these next seven chapters, we'll see there are again circumstances where the Israelites and then later King Saul failed to choose God as their ultimate place of trust. Now, as chapter 8 starts out, we read, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then later in verse 20, we read that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The motivation behind the Israelites' request or demand can somewhat be revealed in the beginning of chapter 8. You see, Samuel was growing old, and also his sons were not following in his ways. Um, It seems like a repeat when we realize that Eli's sons didn't follow in his ways either. So the Israelites were afraid. Their security was threatened, and they believed that having a king like all the other nations would be the answer for them. They wanted a protector. They wanted someone to go before them, someone to fight their battles. And ironically, isn't that what God had done for them their entire history? So their desire for a king wasn't necessarily the issue here. Um, the the, The motivation for them to go out and not wait on the Lord was the issue. God had said back in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that it was okay for them to have a king. Um, He says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So the problem was they wanted to do it on their timeline and not wait on the Lord. God also said in Deuteronomy 17 through various examples to not choose a king like all the nations. So yet we see in their demand, they wanted a king just like the nations. Rooted in this intense desire for the Israelites was a lack of trust. They're not trusting in God's timing, and they're forging ahead with their own desires. God tells Samuel that the problem or the lack of trust is not in him, but ultimately it's in God. They're rejecting God. So the problem is the heart behind the request. John Piper says it this way, just as important is the, is as the act is the spirit and the motive with which it is done. Many good things become great evils because they're not done in humble, joyful reliance on God and a spirit of love. Now, last week, as we read in chapter 7, the Israelites had witnessed God saving them from the Philistines in a mighty fashion. There was this thundering sound, and the Philistines were thrown in confusion, and there was victory. And they even set up a monument, um, a stone called the Ebenezer, which Rebecca went into great detail about and taught us about, which means till now the Lord has helped us. And so it was a, a, a monument to remind themselves of God's faithfulness, and yet they forget again. This idea of erecting a stone or making a visible spiritual marker is significant because it demonstrates that they didn't want to forget. In 2011, when our family traveled to Zambia, Africa for our our first mission trip, um, we didn't want to forget the many ways that God had um, revealed himself to us, the things we learned about him. And so much like the Israelites, when we came back, We each took a stone, and we wrote an attribute of God on the stone. 
um, or a phrase or just something that reminded us of what we saw God do in a mighty way. Well, this is a stone, one of the stones that my son Daniel did, and he wrote the word joyfulness. Um, And I remember Daniel, um, and this was quite a few years back, but um, he was 11. He shared that um, he just was so impacted by the way the Zambians showed joy in spite of their circumstances, that they had such hard stuff. They were so poor, and their lives were hard, and yet they found joyfulness. And he was reminded that joy is found in God alone. Now, these stones are on, in our backyard on a shelf, and um, interestingly, um, as I went to find this stone, I realized that most of the stones have faded. Um, the words have rubbed off, and so it kind of reminded me that much like the stones being faded, our memory fades, and we forget. We forget how God has been faithful to us, um, and, and, and we just have to For me personally, I'm reminded that each day I have to choose to trust God. It's a moment-by-moment choice. Now, we've all had instances, vivid instances, where the Lord has proved himself to be trustworthy to us, but then we forget and we choose things that we can see or touch or control. I know when I choose not to trust, I'm rejecting God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is one of my favorite verses concerning trust. It's a great one to memorize and meditate on concerning trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I just love the absolutes in that verse. All your heart, in all your ways. And it's just a reminder um, to surrender everything to God. So the Israelites had to choose. They had to choose to reject God or depend on him. In the commentary, Christ-centered exposition, exalting Jesus in 1 and 2 Samuel by Heath Thomas and J.D. Greer, they put it this way. God rightly calls this a rejection of him. It was not a total rejection as if they wanted nothing to do with God. It was rejection through demanding that God give them some other source of happiness and security. Both are forms of rejection and they still persist today. Irreligious people reject God by not wanting him to be part of their lives at all. Religious people reject God by letting him be part of their lives, but not really trusting him or depending on him. The last part of that verse, our our quote, is really impactful to me. It's such a reminder. So the question we can ask ourselves is, what am I relying on to make me happy and secure? Am I looking to relationships? that I have? Am I looking to success? Am I looking to my circumstances to be everything I envision them to be or my dreams of what things should be like? Or am I trusting God no matter what my circumstances are, no matter what's going on in my life? Now, honestly, that can be kind of hard. Um, If your marriage is hard, if you're going through some hard things in your marriage, maybe your kids are struggling. Maybe you have a child not living the life you'd hope they'd live. Um, Maybe someone you love is facing a serious health crisis. Maybe you're facing a serious health crisis. So we have to ask ourselves, if one of these things on our list of security is missing, whatever we think makes us feel secure, do we worry? Do we fret? Do we whine? Do we become unhappy, irritable, or frustrated? In full disclosure, for me, it's irritability. Um, In fact, preparing for this lesson, um, I was struggling for these eight chapters to come together, and, and what would I say, and, and it, you know, wanting it to be so good, and 
and realizing that I was irritable. My kids could testify to my irritability as I prepared for this. So I had to take a moment as God was teaching me about trust in this lesson, of trusting him to give me the words. Now for the Israelites, their security list was they wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted someone to lead them, someone to fight their battles. They wanted a warrior king. Now I have three sons and I've watched a lot of Avenger movies. So the person who came to mind for me was Thor. Thor just looks like the warrior king, doesn't he? He looks so good on the outside and and the Israelites, they wanted somebody that they could count on to guard them. They were choosing to set their gaze horizontally, looking at all the other nations instead of looking vertically to God. Now, Thomas and Greer say this in their commentary, a king in your life is whatever you must have in order to be happy and secure. And kings make all their subjects into servants. Romans 6.16 tells us that we are slaves of the one whom we obey. So the challenge for you and I is not to allow our circumstances or our desire for happiness or security to be above our trust in God and our relationship with him. There's such freedom in Christ, and that's what we want. Now, God in his wisdom, he gives us the freedom to choose him as our king or the world. God tells Samuel in chapter 8 to listen to the people and everything that they say to you. God gives them what they're asking for. God does not force us to choose him or love him. You see, to force us to love him would not allow our hearts to be inclined to him. God's desire is not actions without heart. He wants our hearts. In the Gospel of John, he stresses this point numerous times in chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that the most important thing is to love God with all our hearts and all our minds and all our souls. And when we love him, we will desire to obey him and trust him. God gave the Israelites what they desired and wanted in this moment. And he knew that to have their hearts, to have their hearts, they had to choose him. God also instructs Samuel and warns them what a king will mean. God's a loving father. He doesn't leave us on our own to figure it out. He gives wisdom and instruction and warnings for us through his word, maybe through other believers, resources, prayer. And then we choose. See, Samuel told the Israelites that a king would seek self-glory. He would take their sons, their daughters. He would take their stuff, and ultimately they would be slaves. And yet, in spite of these warnings, the Israelites adamantly say, no, we want a king like all the other nations. They ultimately reject God. It's a scary thought to think that God will turn us over to our desires if we choose to reject him. In Paul's letter to the Romans, in chapter 1, Paul warns them what will happen if they know God but choose not to honor him. And for us, too, he explains that you'll become darkened in your thinking. You'll become futile. You'll become ultimately fools. It's a reminder to me to remain humble and in a posture of reverence to God. I'm also reminded in Psalm 139, a prayer that I like to pray, which asks God, God, search me, test me, see if there's any offensive way in me. 
Now, the second half of our reading, we meet Saul. Now, he's a man from the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Kish. And he was more handsome than any other Israelites, the world tells us. He was taller than any of the people. Kind of sounds like Thor, doesn't he? From the outside, this guy looks perfect. And he seems to fit the bill for a warrior king to go out before them and fight their battles. Samuel anoints him and proclaims him as the one God has chosen. It's interesting to point out that when Samuel is introducing him, he reminds the Israelites again that they have ultimately rejected God, the one true God that rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians, the one that has saved them from the hands of their oppressors, from calamities and disasters. God is the one, and God is warning them again and and warning them of the consequences. And Samuel remains true in his trust of God and admonishes the Israelites for rejecting him. Now, in the early days of Saul's arrival, we see some positive things, but I feel like I also saw some red flags. One concern is when Samuel meets Saul, um, his first encounter with him, and tells him he's going to eat with him. Saul seems passive and says, Why am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest? Saul obviously had confidence issues, but God can work with the weak, right? We've seen that. But then when Samuel calls the people together to introduce Saul to them, and he's looking for Saul and and wants to introduce him, and Saul is hiding in the baggage. This tall, handsome Thor guy is hiding in the baggage. They have to run and pull him out. So now the picture begins to be painted of a man who's not trusting God to do what he says he will do, and a man that's fearful of men and what they think of him. Samuel is a prophet of God, and people know him to be a man of his word. He's God's anointed, and and yet Saul doesn't believe what he tells him. There's even some events that Saul tells him. I mean, Samuel tells him about the lost donkeys, where they will be, and the people he'll encounter, and the things they'll give him. And all those things prove true. It seems like such glaring evidence that God's behind this. Um, yet we see that when his uncle asks him, Saul's uncle asks him, "Where? What happened? Where have you been?" He doesn't even mention this whole event. So we see again that Saul is appearing to be weak-hearted and not inclined to God. It's also interesting to point out that when Samuel anoints Saul, he says, has not the Lord appointed you to be prince over the people Israel? Well, when you look at the Hebrew there, the word prince is used. That's the Hebrew word nagid. And I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. But um, the Hebrew word for king is melech, and it's not used. So it's, it's interesting to point out, is God making a statement that he, Yahweh, is the one true king and that Saul is in authority to him, under his authority? Now, Saul starts off his term with an impressive military demonstration. Um, he defeats the Ammonites who have besieged Jabesh, and we see the Spirit of God just rush on him, and it's like he's just fired up to go and fight on behalf of these people. Well, this is just what the people wanted, a, a warrior king to fight on their behalf. Saul even gives the Lord credit for this victory. The kingdom is looking so renewed with his leadership. Then we fast forward, and we have chapters of things going on, but then there's the battle with the Philistines, and we continue to see this slow fade in Saul. Samuel has told him to wait seven days to offer the burnt offerings before battle, and yet we see Saul choose on the seventh day to offer the offerings himself when Samuel isn't arriving right away. This was an act that only the prophet of God or a priest is tasked to do. So we see the crack in Saul's facade 
as he takes matters in his own hands and he does the offerings himself. The lack of trust and desire to look good in front of his men seems glaringly evident. We also saw, see Saul justify these actions by saying he was forced to do this. He felt like he had to do it, and the people were afraid. And, and yet, I think it might have been an opportunity for him to elevate himself, to look like a man of authority, because he, he wanted that approval of his men. The men were scared, it says. Rebecca talked about the Philistines had these mighty weapons. It would be like a bow and arrow versus guns, and they were scared. And so instead of encouraging them and reminding them, Ebenezer, he does the sacrifice himself. He takes matters into his own hands. So we see Saul is ultimately not doing this for God, but himself. So we see a continuation of his decline, a heart for self over a heart for God. We see some other indicators. We see that Saul attaches himself to all the valiant men. It's almost as if he's going to take matters into his own hands and make his team the best team. He also makes some rash decisions on the battlefield where cursed be anyone who eats food and thus leaving his soldiers ineffectively weak. Um, and then finally, we see this moment where he erects a monument to himself at Carmel. And that final nail in the coffin is when God commands Saul to destroy the Amalekites, a tribe that had opposed Israel um, back when they entered into um, the promised land. And God's command is that they destroy every one of them um, and all their stuff. Let nothing be left. Yet Saul fails miserably because he disobeys God. He spares King Agag and he keeps some of the best stuff. This final rejection by Saul is basically the end of his kingdom. As God rejects, rejects him and, and Samuel tells him, You've done evil in the sight of the Lord. And even when this is pointed out, it's interesting to note that Saul doesn't humble himself and repent because we always have that choice. In fact, he acts like a person who's caught. He says, okay, I'm sorry. Um, now will you come with me and honor me in front of the Israelites and the elders? Kind of reminded me when my kids were younger and if they would do something wrong, um, we would have them have the practice of saying, um, I was wrong to whatever the offense was. Will you forgive me? Um, and often my kids wanted to just say sorry and go on to the next thing. But we wanted them to grasp the importance of humbling themselves, acknowledging their wrong, and then asking forgiveness. And then hopefully that would lead to repentance. And that's a much different process than just sorry. So Samuel's words into Saul in chapter 15 are significant to understand that God desires our hearts inclined to him. It says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, it is it to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, God is not an uncaring God, and his grace is sufficient in all things. He knows we'll stumble and fall, but what we do when the light exposes our sin indicates the condition of our hearts. True repentance indicates a desire to trust him and recognize that his ways are best. John Piper's explanation of walking in confident trust is this. My confidence in the sovereignty of God is the most steadying thing in my life. It takes away the chicken little syndrome. No matter what happens, the sky is not falling. God will even take all our mistakes and accomplish his glorious and gracious purpose. We need not have cosmic jitters about any decision. It's a wonderful thing to learn, and it's a great thing to share. In addition, 
as we walk in this truth, living our lives as if we believe it, we see how God is so different than the world. The things of this world will fail us, will um, not fill us up, and they will fall short. I love the way Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says this. Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. From the Israelites trusting in a worldly king that fails them, we learn that only Jesus Christ is the one who can fill the spiritual void in our hearts. Our trust has to be in him in spite of our circumstances. So I want to close today by sharing a personal testimony of trust when God um, really taught me this in a powerful way. In 2010, when I was looking at Facebook one morning, I came across this picture. This is Kelsey. Kelsey was a UMHB student um, who we had met while being involved with college ministry here at TBC. Now, Kelsey and a group of students had gone to Haiti on a mission trip. And that was back when the earthquake had hit and there was much devastation there. And as I was praying for their time there and looking at her picture, I was overwhelmed with feeling heartbroken for God's heart for the orphan. And as I looked at her cradling this precious boy, the Lord impressed this thought upon my mind. Her family isn't finished. Her family isn't finished. It didn't make sense initially, but as I recalled how adoption and foster parents had come up multiple times over the past months and year, I began to pray that God would show me what to do. You see, for us, we already had four children. Our family seemed really finished to me, and we had taken measures to ensure that we would not have any more biological children. This was us in that moment taking matters into our own hands because we didn't really pray about that. It just was the logical thing to do. Four children seemed like a lot. The interesting thing was after Brian and I, um, Brian had his procedure, um, we went through a period of really grieving, grieving this loss. And as I look back, I realized that the Lord was impressing upon our hearts, his heart of our family isn't finished. We even asked at one point if we could have the procedure reversed, and we were told it's impossible. It was permanent. So a few weeks after I had that initial thought, I thought, I really need to talk to Brian about this. So I didn't thought he would think I was crazy. And um, to my surprise, and, and not so surprisingly, when I told Brian, he said he'd been having the very same thoughts in his quiet time. So the Lord gave me this verse in Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, with our finite minds and eyes, we couldn't see how our family could change or grow because we were thinking with our minds instead of applying the mind of Jesus Christ, which is ours in him. So as we began to pray and ask, the Lord made it abundantly clear we were to grow our family through adoption. The whole process took almost two years. We faced many trials and delays along the way. And this journey took me to a place of trusting God like I had never experienced because it was so beyond my scope of control. So as we slowly learned to let go of our fears and our limited thinking, God showed us that not only were we to adopt, but we were to adopt an older son. Um, 
it made sense to us at the time, an infant or a toddler. But no, God said an older son. And, and then the biggest stretch for me, we were to adopt our son from Africa. Africa was a country I was scared of. There was animals that could eat you there and diseases. Um, and also as a person who doesn't like to draw attention to herself, who'd much rather be sitting out there with you, taking notes than up here, this was not going to allow me to blend in. You see, my son would be African, and that would make us look very different to the rest of the world. And I would have to face people looking, maybe people judging us. So step by step, the Lord showed me how to trust him in this. And there's so many instances along the way where he gave us opportunities to trust. There was delayed paperwork because mistakes were made. We had car trouble once on the way to the airport to get to Ethiopia. One of our children was very resistant to this idea of changing our family in a drastic way. We had friends that didn't know what to think of it. We had family that didn't agree. And then there were the Ethiopian procedures that changed halfway through and delayed the matching of children with families. So there were many, many things like this. You see, when you choose God to be your king, you will not be like all the other nations. You'll be set apart and you'll be used by him for his glory. Now, yes, this is a big event in my life. And um, not all opportunities or trust are this life-changing and monumental. Some are just day-to-day decisions, but the process is the same. You acknowledge he's Lord of your life. You surrender everything to him. You trust him with every detail and decision you have to make. And you walk in the truth that he loves you. He's faithful and he will never disappoint you. No matter what it is, the only life-giving, soul-protecting, grace-abounding way is to trust him because he is always faithful. The end result is a picture that only God could create. This is my family in um, August of 2012 when Isaac, as mom, El Steve, who I'm holding, age five, and Brian and I arrived at the Austin airport and we were united with our family. First time, this is our first family picture. Now, it doesn't mean that it's all easy and happy, happy, happy. It's not at times, to be honest. It's hard, it's real, and it's messy. But trusting God is ultimately the best. And God's peace, which transcends my understanding, will guard your heart and mind and my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. I'm going to stop it there because Suzanne's prayer um, didn't finish on the video, so I'm going to pray for us. So let's let's pray together. God, thank you so much for speaking through your servant, Suzanne, and for teaching us about trusting you, how you desire us to choose you. You give us that option. God, you want our whole hearts. Would you convict us? Would you teach us? Would you continue to draw us near to you? God, we long to do that. Would you help us to empty, empty ourselves of all those barriers to trusting you wholeheartedly? And would you help us to, to trust you together as your people? We thank you, Father, for giving us your Holy Spirit to, to do that work in us. It's such a gift. Thank you for your son who was willing to die on our behalf and to live 
victoriously in us, through us, and among us as, as his body, your church. We're so grateful, Father. We ask your blessing on us as we leave this place. Would you continue to teach us, continue to direct our steps, and um, would you be honored in everything that we say and everything that we do this very day. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name.